The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 3rd of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Preparations for October's budget are at an intense stage now. This week, the government is to publish its summer economic statement. That will outline the parameters for the next budget and will put figures on how taxes will be collected and what the government intends spending across 2024. The Irish Times is reporting today that it's expecting the government will break its national spending rule to limit spending increases to 5% and announce increases that will total 6 or 6.5% instead. And then there is also the dilemma of what to do with uh, this 65 billion euro that will become uh, available unexpectedly in windfall taxes over the next three years. Well, this morning, Social Justice Ireland publishes its budget budget choices uh, which may make for interesting reading for the government ministers as well. Let's hear a little bit more about what Social Justice Ireland is proposing. Sean Healy, its director, is on the line and a very good morning to you Sean and thanks for joining us. I think your starting point uh, this year is to learn from the mistakes that the government made last year. Absolutely. There should be no repetition of the disgraceful outcomes of the last budget, uh, which saw what what happened then. The rich-poor gap was widened, and Ireland's most vulnerable people found themselves worse off in 2023 than they had been in 2022 or 2021. That's a disgraceful outcome, given the amount of money that's available. It basically shows that government made choices uh, to give the money that was available in different directions, but to keep it away from those who were more most vulnerable and to see to, to allow their situation to get worse. And even uh, recently at the National Economic Dialogue that was admitted that this had actually happened although it wasn't their intention. It was acknowledged by the, both the Taoiseach and the Minister for Finance, Leo Varadkar and Michael McGrath. Uh, and I thought that was at least a progress that they would be recognising that this is the case. So uh, what we're basically uh, arguing is that Budget 2024 should be guided by one core principle, that the measures adopted prioritise the protection of the most vulnerable groups in our society. The most vulnerable should get the priority and their situation should be protected. And to do that, uh, we have all the various budget things, but the, the most obvious thing for to talk to people that people will get, get is that we need a minimum increase in the, in the core welfare rate of €25 Euro mm. in Budget 2024. This is uh, to catch up so that we make up for, the, for what was lost in the 23 budget. And as well as that, because of the situation of children, we're also advocating a €50 Euro increase in the monthly child benefit payment. Those two things together would make a big uh, dent in the problem that, that's out there, but it would also m- move us fairly well in the direction that we're arguing that there should be no repetition of last year's disgraceful outcome. It's an awful lot of money, though, isn't it? Uh, and would limit uh, the government's uh, ability to help people in other ways. 
uh, yes and no. Uh, the, the, the story in this morning's Irish Times is, is wrong, basically. Uh, let, me, uh, let me explain. Uh, what government said they would do is, yes, the Irish Times is right in that, that they would say 5% uh, would be the, the, what they would increase it by. That would be the maximum. However, how do they calculate that? They basically said they would, they would increase it by inflation plus 3%. Now, inflation at that time when they were talking about this, inflation was a 2%. So they said 2% plus an increase of 3 gives you 5%. That's where the 5% comes from. However, inflation is now heading like 4.5%. So to, to keep to, all they have to do, they can, they can increase their expenditure by up to 8% because you have to and still stay within their already agreed parameters. So there would be a lot more fiscal space. There would be a lot more work, money available. I, I, my own calculation is that there would be a few billion extra available uh, within the government's own parameters if they just stick to what they already agreed that they would take inflation plus 3% would mm. be the increase. So th- that 5% isn't set in stone, in other words. You believe no, that no. it's something that needs to be calculated or recalculated every year? Recalculated, because it was calculated, yeah. I think, three years ago mm. when, they, when they set this in their first budget of this government. They, at that time, they were working on this, and uh, that was what they came up with. Now, at that time, everybody expected that inflation was going to continue at 2% a year going into the foreseeable future so that there would be no big change in the 5% and the focus tended to be for short you know shorthand it's a 5% increase but when you break it down go into it you see 2% uh, for sorry the the inflation plus 3% is what they were actually saying that's where they got the 5 from in the first place so staying with that they can go up to sort of seven and a half, whatever, depending on what mm. inflation rate they see coming in 2024. Now, what we're also recommending, though, this year is because of the huge surplus that's there that you mentioned already, Michael, mm. um, what we're suggesting is that the government split the budget in two. Mm. And what we mean by that is that they, the one-off money that they've got that that's coming in, that sort of windfall money, should only be spent on one-off expenditure. In other words, it should be spent on things that don't have to be repeated again next year or the following year. So we don't need the, m- the money a second time around. Examples would be you could build extra houses or, you know, you could do things of that nature. Yeah. And, you know, once, once the house is built, you don't have to build it again next year. So, it's a, okay, so what we're, uh, we're saying basically that that should be one part of the budget so that people are clear about what part of the windfall are our government proposing to spend on and on what. And then that they would take the regular budget without the windfall included and report on that separately. And what the challenge there, you see, is that if they did that, it would then be very transparent. We would see whether or not we were paying our way on the regular budget so that a few years down the line when there's another crash or when the windfall dries up or whatever goes wrong, and there will always be something going wrong um, at some point, uh, that we will be very clear that we are paying our way before we get there, not suddenly waking up one morning and finding that we're several billion in the the rate. But should it also be calculated uh, in terms of how much spending is to be increased by or should it be separate to that 5% or 8% rule uh, as you see it? I'd be okay with the 8% or 7.5% whatever the inflation number actually is and I want a real inflation number. Mm. Because that rule is there to stop fueling inflation. Absolutely, absolutely. But but the point at issue is that there's no 
law that says that this, if you go beyond this point or that point or the other point, uh, that there will be an, an escalation of inflation. There's a generally there would be a general acceptance of the idea that you you you, you counter you counter inflation plus three percent would not be seen as excessive. The five percent when it was set was accepted both by the central bank and and the fiscal council and so on as well as the government itself. Mm. So uh, I'm simply adjusting it uh, to to make it to bring it up to date basically. So what we have done and what we will be doing today is setting out our budget exactly as we're suggesting it. The government should do it. So we're splitting the budget in two. We have a sort of a windfall ask, if you like. So we're suggesting that they, they will spend a, a certain a, not not, not a, a huge amount, but a certain amount of the windfall, but account for it separately and make that money available for one-off expenditure only. And on the other side, we're going to be argue, uh, showing that we have the rest of the, the government, the, the, the normal, we have the whole normal budget in place, and we are going to bring that in in the black. In other words, we're not going to be in deficit uh, in what we're proposing on the normal budget, so that if there was a crash next year and we didn't have any extra windfall money we'd be still have we'd have balanced our books in 24 mm. in other words we'd have paid our way and we wouldn't have any accumulation or increase in uh, in our borrowing or whatever as a result of that right the idea of increasing welfare rates by 25 euro a week is colossal there's never been increases of that scale previously are you suggesting that all welfare payments would be increased by 25 euro uh, all core welfare rates, then there's, there's different pieces around the edges, mm. but, but all core welfare rates should go up by 25, and so should the, pen, the pensions. In, in, that's, a separate, mm-hmm. that's a separate issue, but uh, the state pension should go up by 25 euro a week mm. as well. Why? Because uh, the pensioners uh, also got hit by the last budget, mm. by the budget of 23. They got left behind. The number of older people in poverty has increased by over 50,000 in a single year. Yeah. Uh, we're going in the wrong direction. We're not dealing with that reality. Therefore, we need to deal with it and deal with it immediately. Okay. What about unemployment benefit? Uh, unemployment benefit would be for, for us an increase of 25 euro. Really? Be it. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, but there's no reason to be unemployed in this country. Uh, employment is at a, a record high. Anybody, anybody who wants to work should be able to get a, a job. Right. Why, why reward them for being unemployed to the tune of €1,300 a, a year, especially if, if that's to prevent the government from giving €1,000 a, a year to hard-working people? No, the, the 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 people who are unemployed, uh, the, the, it's now down at uh, whatever three point eight percent. The majority of those are actually only employ, unemployed for a short time. They're people in transition, either from school or college into jobs, or they're people who are in transition from one uh, from one to another, no one job to another. Like there's a, there's a, a, a general agreement that once you get this would be. I don't think any economists uh, argue, disagree with this or any social policy analyst like that. Once you get unemployment down under 4%, you are in effect at full employment because as they, you have all of those people that I'm talking about. They're the majority of people who are unemployed. They will actually be employed relatively soon. Uh, they, they've only a matter of months before they're, they're back into into jobs or into jobs for the first time as it would be the situation for, for college graduates and secondary school graduates and so on. The the other grouping within that is people who have, you know, 
the others who are long-term unemployed, they tend to be people with serious issues and problems. And what they need from us and from the society generally is supports. They need training. They need the, the whatever supports are required for them to upskill if they already have a skill but find themselves suddenly their job is redundant because this is no longer something, mm. you know, the technology or whatever. Should, no should, should they be no reca- used and they need to mm. retraining, they need upskilling. We need those kinds of... Should they be recategorised? Well, I, I don't have any great problem mm. with recategorising it. Like, basically, they already... Um, categorize the, the payment as job seekers allowance, you know, and job, mm. job seekers yeah, benefit. But if somebody you know? hasn't worked for 20 years in a, a country uh, where everybody has a, a job if they want to work, uh, there is something wrong. But hold on, hold on a second. You know, there, there's a, like, people have an entitlement to, to, to job seekers benefit mm. when they become unemployed. And I mean, that's very important for people. Like, people got re- are, are laid off. Look at what's mm. happening up in Tara Mines or mm. what happens in different places. Like, okay, but do situations I, do, do in people different have places it, but should people have a choice not to work? Should people be able to decide, I don't want to work? No. Like, basically, people are never better off in Ireland today. There is no way that people are better off on the dole than they are if they had a job. Well, they and might be if they're doing Nixers or if uh, they've got some sidelines selling God knows. Okay. Well, mm. I mean, yeah. I know, like, exceptional cases make bad laws, you know. Mm. I mean, mm. like, you, you'll always have chancers, like, in the whole world, uh, you know, uh, the, the capacity for doing nixers and doing things under the table and so on uh, exp- expands or extends right across society. It's not confined to unemployed people. It's, it also includes plenty of rich people who are not paying tax on money that they're getting under <laughs> yeah, the table. I think there's a few of them up in Dublin Fours. Or teaching, teaching kids, giving them grinds or whatever the story. There's a whole, like, there's a whole liter- literature on that. There's a whole lot of research and there's a whole lot of output. It is not mm. a huge component of what's going on. Like we we are a, a very modern economy. Mm. Uh, we have a huge amount of stuff going on. We need to upskill our, our workers if they don't have the skills. We need to put good infrastructure into place if we don't have the infrastructure in place. Mm. And we certainly in Ireland have problems with services and infrastructure. We're way behind the European average. We're way behind what you'd expect in a country with the level of income that we have in Ireland. Mm. Uh, like Ireland is not a poor country. The problem with us is we're the, we're the dearest country in Europe. Europe. Like we have our, our bills, like it's it's 146 percent of the European average cost of living in Ireland. So, like that's that's crazy. And not alone that, uh, the, the Ireland does not have Scandinavian levels of uh, uh, salaries mm. uh, among ordinary people uh, to pay for this. No, and so, I think and that's the the, the point I was making about the welfare rates or the yeah. unemployment rates, uh, because uh, there's the squeezed middle uh, who may not be terribly pleased if they don't get that one thousand euro put back into their pockets, which uh, the Fine Gael camp is arguing for, and unemployed people end up with 1300 uh, into their pockets extra yeah but the the bottom line in this is for us is i'm not compared uh, i think people in your squeeze middle uh, in the way the way Finnegale define it, it tends to be the top third they're talking about. They're not talking really about the middle, mm. uh, because the, the Finnegale's uh, proposal on a uh, thousand euro doesn't benefit anybody with less than forty thousand of an income. So, like that, that's not a very good, that's not a very fair way of d- distributing the money. Certain groups will benefit, other groups don't benefit at all. Mm. The bottom line in this is the most hit, the hardest hit group, and there's plenty of research, including from the ESRI and others, that show this to be the case. The hardest 
hardest hit people uh, in, in, since the start of the, rise, the cost of living rising uh, are the poorest. Mm. And the people who have been left furthest behind are the poorest. And this needs to be rectified. And dodging it for a year or two, which the government has done, should, they should not be allowed to get away with uh, then saying, OK, we'll start mm. doing it now and we'll do it this year, but we'll ignore what we did last year and the year before. Okay. I'm sorry, but that's not acceptable. All right. Me. Well, it's unacceptable to you. I'm sure you won't mind me saying, though, that uh, you have a very different ethos uh, to that of Fine Gael. Uh, and on that subject, I think Fine Gael would be dismayed at your proposal to end the Help to Buy scheme. This is a scheme that's set up for first-time buyers. Uh, it'll give them €30,000 to buy uh, an expensive home uh, in most cases. Uh, why would you do away with that when Finnegan is saying this is actually giving people the chance to get a foot on the property ladder? Because all it's, all it's going to do is increase the cost of housing by 30000 a unit. That's exactly what's going to happen. This is a waste of money. It's not going to be of any great benefit to the people who are going to get that money. It's a waste of money putting more money into builders' pockets or into developers' pockets, whoever's actually selling the house. So what we're basically saying is the solution to the housing problem, and we have discussed this many times on this program, Michael, um, and I would challenge anybody, but I'm happy to discuss it with anybody. Uh, The bottom line in this is we have a supply problem. We do not have enough houses in Ireland, enough accommodation to accommodate our hugely growing population. Now, how to deal with that? What's the best way to do it? What I'm suggesting is this. Um, Like you, you have private housing, you have uh, private rental, and then you have a sort of social housing that's that's kind of rented out to people who can't afford. Now, what I'm arguing is that the, the, the big pressure or the big increase in housing should be among the housing, social housing. What does that do? You increase the numbers. All those people who are in private rented uh, who are currently being be able to stay in private rent because there's huge support going in from government and uh, in the HAP and so on, the housing assistance payment. Uh, what, we're, what I'm saying is simply those people should drop down into social housing. Um, I don't mean drop down in mm-hmm. a bad sense, like yeah. I'm just talking about the different types of things. They'll be getting good housing, but they won't be having to be supported by the government to actually uh, with, with money. Those houses that they leave in the private rented then become available and that changes the ball game it hugely in this the fastest way to increase the supply in the private rental sector and that's the critical issue there now once you start putting pressure and once you start having that capacity then that stabilizes the price it no longer starts going keeps going up then you move into a space where people can actually save to pay a down payment and a, a deposit or whatever on a, on a house if they want to buy one and we move into that space one figure that might be of interest to you yeah. and to your listeners um, across all of Europe the average in, a, in the main countries is that there's of all their housing stock 20% of it is social housing in Ireland all social housing is only 9%. Right. That's the problem we have. Mm. And all we have to do is increase our, our social housing supply. And the problem is, partly that we would argue, is that not alone is the government not giving enough focus to, although it's improving, it hasn't given sufficient focus to social housing, but the actual targets they have in their planned housing for all, the targets are not big enough to meet the, the requirements. And what we're, there, we're heading towards is a situation when we finish, if we implemented everything in housing for all uh, by 2030, we'd still be 
close to 100,000 households not in accommodation that they require. That is not a long-term plan that has any credibility. Okay. And it's, it, 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 it was, it's not going to solve uh, the housing problem in the next 10 years, and that leaves us with a further 10 or 15 years. To end. So we're heading into, like, yeah, if we don't get act together, we'd be yeah. 25 years waiting yeah. for to deal with this issue. It really is shocking to think that that might be the case, given that we've had this problem for 10, 15 years and had worse homeless figures ever recorded on, on Friday and they'll be even worse again in a month's time no doubt but we have to leave it there for the moment Sean and thank you indeed for joining us uh, with just some uh, of uh, the proposals you're making uh, this week as uh, the government prepares uh, to publish its summer economic statement uh, that's Sean Healy the Director of Social Justice Ireland Michael Reed on LMFM. Right, uh, the problem of manganese in uh, the water supply in Dundalk continues and works begin today on the Mill Road uh, to lay pipes uh, there. It's part of an ongoing process uh, that really needs to be addressed quicker than sooner, according to Sinn Féin TD, Furlough, Andy Smith, Rory Murku, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you issued a statement uh, about this uh, and you sound at this stage at the end of your tether yes well look here uh, I imagine an awful lot of the people that still send you the pictures or the videos of brown water running you know what I mean and uh, are, are at the end of their tether and also you know you, you tell them what your interaction is with Irish water and there's almost an element of here you know, you don't sound too credible, you know, because this has been going on for so long. So, look, the fact is, uh, right, Irish, we had a whole pile of conversations about iron oxide for a huge period of time. We know there is an issue in relation to legacy pipework across the board that needs to be dealt with. But at least now we are told absolutely the issue is a greater level of manganese uh, in the water. So what we have been told, and I have been told at a number of meetings in the last while, is there is a programme that will address this. I was told that they would be well aware of all that that would take. Now, you're told my best case scenario was these take a number of years, but we will try and get this done within two years. But I know the councillors, uh, when they met with Irish or with Ishgaran, and there was a huge amount of difficulty in making that come about, uh, you know, uh, and, and I know Kevin Meenan, as chair of the municipal district, you know, may, may put a big push on in relation to it. Uh, but the fact is, uh, him and others, uh, but the fact is, um, they told them this would be a number of years before this is this is fixed. Look, mm. I use every opportunity. I'll, I'll be honest. The, in front of the Cush de Gaelga, uh, Ishka Aaron were in dealing with issues in Gaeltacht areas. And see, the minute anybody mentioned manganese, I came in with a follow-on question in, in relation to this. And I said, look, there have to be other places that are dealing with manganese. Uh, my understanding of it is it's a reaction between the manganese and the... Um, uh, and, and and the chemicals, you know what I mean, the yeah. chlorine and, and whatever else. And it makes the water brown. And it makes the water brown. But the water um, is safe to drink. It, we are told that the manganese levels are at a level that is safe. Now, who's going to drink uh, brown water? Like, you know, I would put it in front of 10 people and I'm assuming I'd have 10 full glasses that would be returned to me afterwards. Um, look, we... And I have requested many times and here have no doubt that following all of this, my latest request is in is for a, a detailed meeting with Irish Water because they had told those councillors that they were going to furnish them with a report following the meeting. And I, I was told also I would get a copy of this. This hasn't uh, happened yet. 
So we need this to happen as, as soon as possible. We need to know what exactly they're talking about in relation to the programme. Because others have told me as well that there are other means of putting chlorine into the system, possibly, you know, gas-based systems and whatever, where you don't necessarily get the same reaction. Now, I'm no chemist, so I'd like to see what could be done as regards a short-term mitigation. Uh, we, we know the flushing has happened, and it's probably happened. I, I think it's fair to say it's happening in a more comprehensive way than before. Mm. You know, I, I think previously it was it was quite ad hoc. But the problem is, for the people of Dundalk, for the last number of years, they've been looking at brown water. Is flushing only a temporary solution? I mean, is the yeah. solution replacing the pipes because the manganese is in the pipes? Uh, see, at this stage, it's it's making sure we don't have more manganese. Uh, there's a, there's a increased amounts of manganese in the system, so we need a program of works that will be mm. in operation in Cabin Hill and wherever else that deal with this full stop. You know what I mean? Mm. Then at that stage, I suppose you continue flushing and whatever else you need to do for yeah. you know legacy issues that remain uh, in the pipes. Look, but we, there's we this job of digging up the but there's the job of digging up the town to replace the pipes. Oh yeah, look, see, mm. see that particular work? Like, that is going to have to be ongoing. We know the issue in relation to lead in the pipes. We know the issue in relation to there's many in a state in Nundalk that's aware of their sewerage system was probably built imperfectly um, with uh, the wrong type of pipes, too many houses on the same, on the same link. And the fact is that if the issue happens and it happens in your back garden, you are responsible, even if it's it relates to a number of houses or even in worst cases where it's the public line, but it manages to run through. Uh, run through your backyard and I know I've dealt with multiple of these issues now so I'm not going to get into listing them because some of them may be hopefully across the line and sorted but look we need to look at this in a holistic collective way but first and foremost we need to know what the programme of works that's going to deal with the brown water in the dock that they say my bet, the best case scenario, I was told, it could take two years. The worst case said a number of years that didn't determine how many years. And um, so we need to know what the programme is, when it's going to be in place. All right. Um, I want to talk to you, if I can, about a very interesting poll that has been published today. 1,200 interviews in Northern Ireland at the same time as 1,200 interviews in the south of Ireland. Uh, Amoric Research uh, carried out the interviews here, Lucid Talk, the interviews in the north. Uh, and this was a survey for the European Movement poll. There's a, a lot in this survey, but very interesting findings, is there not, about the prospect of reuniting Ireland. There seems to be an awful lot more confidence in Northern Ireland uh, that that will happen in the next 10 years. Uh, the vast majority of people don't think it will happen in the south just 24% of people think it's a possibility within uh, the next decade but 45% of people in Northern Ireland think it's a possibility what do you make of that? Well, I suppose the thing about polls, we like to take uh, the pieces we like and give them an importance and then find reasons why we can reduce the level of the importance of, of, of others' pieces. Uh, I've often said, right, the conversation on Irish unity is happening. I, I think it is, but in fairness, the real conversation, the preparations by government and, let's say, a citizens' assembly or a citizens' assembly plus uh, we, we don't see any, any signs of this where we could really have the conversation. So so on some level, because of that, there's a lot of people don't believe uh, 
anything is on their way that's going to change that set of circumstances. But I think the very positive, two very positive things I take, the fact that the European uh, Movement Ireland, and I spoke to Noelle O'Connell uh, about this, because they will come in in front of the EU Affairs Committee that I sit on within the next uh, while to, talk, to do it every year. I think it's very positive that they have done this on an all-Ireland basis. Now, I, I know this is an online poll. I'd be very interested to see um, how the sampling was done, particularly in, in relation to the South. Yeah, I am somewhat surprised about that 24%. But that's just 24%, I, I, um, I suppose, of people who are saying, yeah, uh, I, I see United Ireland, I suppose there's a considerable amount who aren't because they don't see any of those moves that need to be made by government. And I suppose it's only at the point in time when you have a referendum and a referendum date that this becomes a real deal. And look, we've seen actually the results in relation to a huge amount of people who even voted leave in the North who now say they are very supportive of the South staying in the European Union. Mm. And you can see right across the board that there's huge support in relation to the European Union. While people may still have difficulties in relation to some directions it takes, I would put myself into that bracket. And we see the fact is United Ireland is completely caught up now at this stage with its the for an awful lot of people, this is the means by which mm. the North gets back into the European Union. So I suppose that's why yeah. you're seeing such a... And a greater level of conversation is still happening in the North. That's why the percentages mm. are higher. Maybe I can read out just some of uh, the findings yes. uh, relating mm. uh, to uh, Europe uh, and so on. Um, uh, since Brexit, do you think that Northern Ireland in overall ter- terms is better or, or worse uh, was one of the questions. Uh, 66% of people in Northern Ireland say it's doing worse. Uh, it's interesting, it's less than that in the South. 51% say it's doing worse, but 66% uh, not happy, obviously, that they've uh, left the European Union. Uh, what about uh, having MEPs? 74% of people in Northern Ireland want to elect members of uh, the European Parliament. Uh, and think that that should continue. Uh, And um, where do you get your information from on EU issues? Uh, 62% in Northern Ireland um, saying uh, that they get it through traditional media, um, which is interesting as well in terms of how they're coming to these uh, views. But it seems that people in Northern Ireland uh, believe that Brexit has been bad, they want to be in the European Union and they want to be represented in the European Parliament. Yeah, most certainly uh, we call it a democratic deficit. Like There is an acceptance that um, obviously with the Windsor framework and, and, and all the particular rigmarole there has been to find mitigations because of Brexit, um, the fact is there will be European laws that will relate very specifically to the North, you know, and that obviously suits in relation to making sure there's no hard border on the island of Ireland. But you basically, you have those rules without representation. Um, Now, we may attempt from our point of view to provide whatever representation we can. I'd like to think we'll have a greater number of MEPs after the next European uh, uh, elections. but the fact is, it will mean people in the north do not get an opportunity to vote uh, in relation to people who will sit in the European Parliament. So therefore, they have no real voice in that sense. Now, I, I know that there will be, there are other um, facilities and forums at which you know issues can be brought up. And obviously, there's been a huge amount of engagement. Like the, there was a huge amount of engagement 
you know, uh, with people in the north, even from a point of view of trying to bring about the Windsor framework. And hopefully that will, when the very near future, bring us the means by which the DUP can get off their own hook. We can get an executive up and running. But look, it's obvious mm. for a lot of people, Brexit has been a disaster. The last period uh, for here, Britain and for the north has not been good. Um, Brexit has brought nothing good to the, to the island of Ireland or anywhere else for that matter. Um, and the fact is you have a huge amount of people who probably even voted um, to leave, to vote for Brexit. And this is in the north and, and across Britain who wouldn't do it today um, because they see the outworkings of it. And the fact is there's a huge amount of people that were lied to by uh, politicians. And like the, the certain uh, cohort of unionism has... Uh, has questions to answer in in relation to that. You know, that that goes without saying. Look, the fact is, you can see the importance of the European Union. And from an all-island point of view, uh, we all know the logic of running a single entity in relation to all the various departments. And uh, we know the sense that it makes of an all-island economy. We've had elements of that, but all this could be improved. And the really only solution in relation to Ireland staying properly within the European Union is is Irish unity. Mm. I think those percentages will go up and down in polls. But what we really need to see is an Irish government that does the proper preparatory work and that through engagement with the British government and others, that we set a referendum. We set a referendum date with a reasonable run in time. We do not have the madness of Brexit and that we have all the information on the table, that we do have all that preparatory work that needs to be done uh, by be it the shared island unit, but mm. by the various hands of government, uh, as I say, north and south, and, and uh, the British government will have their part to play. Uh, and, and then I have no doubt that the European Union will have, have its part to play in relation to facilitating what will hopefully be a, a yes vote following uh, a worthwhile political process okay. on this island. All right. Uh, and leave it there. Uh, I, I am over time, but before um, you leave us, uh, could I just bring one of the other issue uh, to you that has come to us uh, by text about uh, a company called Global MedTech. Um, they are employing 235 people in Drogheda uh, and uh, I'm just being told uh, that they're to lay 60 of the staff off over the next 15 months uh, and uh, COVID uh, it seems has uh, played a, a part uh, in uh, the downturn for this uh, business but uh, that's a, a bad day 60 jobs gone in Drogheda by the sounds of that Look it's, it's, it's a dreadful it's dreadful news for, for the county for Drogheda it's dreadful news for those families and for those people that have been told that they're uh, that they're going to lose their job we, we need to make sure that um, there is the engagement from government from a point of view of you know what can be done I'd like to hope that there was engagement you know, happening be, beforehand, and that we need to make sure that the workers get uh, what their 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 entitlements plus. You know, because many mm-hmm. a company has based itself in Ireland and has survived in Ireland on the basis of the of the significant uh, input from a really really well educated, uh, committed uh, workforce. And then we need to ensure that, as I say, all those necessary bodies are involved. If if this is unavoidable, and okay. um, that the retraining programs and whatever else will be facilitated by obviously government departments, but also by the company themselves. And we'd like to see that obviously that this company, even if it's going through this particular patch obviously is going to continue in Ireland into the future. Okay, really there has there. to be full on engagement. 
All right, we'll leave it there and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and me, the East Rory Murakou. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. So, if you're in Drogheda today, uh, you may be interested in an email that's come to me from a Boherbrua resident. It says, I'm a, a resident of Boherbrua in Drogheda, and I wish to bring to your attention a topic I hope you can shine a spotlight on mismanagement of traffic planning in Drogheda. Boherbrua is an old residential area built over 70 years ago and was never planned to be a major route through the north side of the town. It has a creche and a national school and with that comes high footfall and increased safety risks when the vehicles using the road are oversized. Multiple times on a daily basis, buses, both single and double-decker, HGVs, construction vehicles, farm machinery, etc. use this road. I'm reaching out for help as I cannot stand by and accept the noise and pollution this traffic brings to my doorstep. I have also contacted local representatives, but I'm not expecting much response from them, to be honest, says that Boher Brewer resident. Uh, And thank you indeed uh, for your email to the programme. Uh, I'm not sure, as I say, uh, if that's of interest to you, if you are in Drogheda or if you have any thoughts on it, but as always, would love to hear from you and you're welcome to share them with us. I'll give you the numbers in just a couple of moments time um, just uh, while uh, we're on comments uh, there's a lot of people in touch with us about the RTE scandal and comments that we didn't come to uh, last week we'll try and get some time for them later in the programme uh, but one that came to us last week as well from somebody who said just get away from that RTE saga I drive a, a minibus for a living and every time I fill up to the brim uh, in uh, one garage and it reads 980 kilometres on my gauge and when I, I do the exact fill up in a different garage instead of 980 it says 1042 kilometres on my gauge and I've done this uh, on numerous times with the same result I was wondering if anyone else has come across uh, a similar problem thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us uh, if you have uh, we've like to know uh, and uh, we'd like to hear from you if there's anything that you want to comment on anything on your mind today our telephone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM Now to another online survey carried out uh, by Amoric Research uh, this time for AWARE AWARE is a national organisation uh, that supports people with depression bipolar disorder and mood-related conditions. Uh, This is a survey of 1,200 people which looked to see what awareness and perception we have of depression in this country. And let's speak about the findings now with Dr Susan Brannock, Clinical Director with AWARE. And a very good morning to you, Dr Brannock. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. It would seem from your survey that there's very high rates of depression in this country. Sure. So the survey did show up um, high rates of both depression and anxiety. So um, three in five and four in five for depression and anxiety, respectively. Now, it's important maybe to put those results in context. So obviously, in terms of depression and anxiety, we can consider that as a continuum. So anything from the mild range of, let's say, depression into to moderate to severe. So not everyone who's answered our survey is in the severe range. So 
I suppose that's a positive um, takeout from the the survey overall. Mm. So we know that people may be experiencing um, elements of depression and anxiety, but are at the same time have sought help for them, have have kind of reported to us that they're making changes, whether that be in lifestyle or or kind of other areas, and that they're they're kind of overcoming them or they're managing them. So now within that survey too, though, there are a proportion of people who might be at the more severe end. So maybe Mm. about a, a quarter of a third of people who are saying, to us that actually they're feeling so down at times or or feeling so anxious that they're not able to get on with their day-to-day lives, whether that's kind of getting up, going to work, um, being connected in relationships. So obviously those people will have more specific needs maybe than people who who may be experiencing some anxiety but generally kind of able to to get on day-to-day. I would say maybe for that, for all groups really, to, to kind of reach out for help if you feel that you need it. And certainly for people who are really, really struggling do contact your GP. Um, there is a lot of help out there. Our survey kind of very positively showed that when people who told us that they did kind of reach out for a GP or a mental health professional broadly found that experience to have met their needs. Mm. That's a really important finding because there can often be a fear that the person maybe won't understand or you won't get the help that you need. What our survey said is that people generally tended to to get the help that they needed. So that's a really positive finding in amongst yeah. maybe what mm. maybe also feels a little bit mm. a little bit negative. But it is uh, worrying, is it not, to think that so many people are struggling, albeit to varying degrees. Yeah, it is. It is worrying um, that people are struggling, and I guess there's, there's. So it's. It's. I'm glad to be to be on here this morning to talk through it, and that we can mm. raise a bit of awareness around that. You know, and and certainly the kind of things that were well, certainly the the most uh, significant factor across all age groups. So we'd gone from 18 to 55 plus. Um, everyone's saying that financial concerns are one of the main drivers of their distress. So I guess it's important maybe to bring in the wider social context in this, that there's lots of different stresses that are impacting on people's well-being today, Um, whether that be money, housing, work, all of those aspects are going to be relevant. Mm. Uh, And I suppose uh, you could ask yourself if 58% of uh, the population uh, has financial worries, uh, if uh, they're finding it hard in this cost of living crisis to make uh, ends meet. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Uh, and does that uh, reflect in uh, the 58% of the population if uh, the poll is accurate uh, who have suffered some form of depression. Mm. Yeah, so it'd be good to... I mean, I've, yeah. you, mm. This is on 1,200 people, so it'd be good to... And it's, it's a representative sample, mm. but I think it's an area that needs more more research, actually. Yeah, I think it's it's concerning enough that we should be asking questions about mm. what, what's sort of going on for people in the context that we're living mm. in. And we know, you know, for instance... Um, the World Health Organization has suggested that mental health services should be funded at 12%. And currently in Ireland, it's just under 6%. So we mm. know that there isn't sufficient funding for the services that we need mm. routinely. And it's odd because it should be a fabulous country to live in because it's a very wealthy country, although some mm. people scoff at the idea of that. Maybe that's feeding into these figures. How does Ireland compare... Uh, to countries elsewhere. I, I mean, to me, I, I think uh, three in five people suffering some sort of uh, depression uh, is shocking. Uh, is mm-hmm. that similar to elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, well, I guess, as I said, it's, it's a survey, so it's important to mm. kind of hold that in context of self-report. It does broadly align, I suppose, the more recent research um, from across European countries would say that Ireland had the third highest rates of mental health problems in Europe. Um, so those findings kind of are relatively consistent. It does seem to be higher here, and it's it's, it's complicated to to kind of unpack why that might be. Mm. Certainly, a, a lower level of service provision is going to play a role. For instance, if you think, and I'm not saying that's the only reason, but it's one of potential reasons yeah. or or contributors. If someone is on a waiting list for 18 months for mental health support. It's, it's possible that they may experience a deterioration or and, and that so that might be a contributing factor too so okay. mm. as well as the social factor so it, it's it's complicated and, and needs mm. more research as, as to why as you say it is a great country so what mm. what's kind of going on that so many people are suffering yeah uh, uh, most of us the vast majority of us uh, are, are familiar with uh, depression and uh, the symptoms four and five or 73 percent. Um, do you believe that that's correct? I mean, it's very easy to understand uh, that somebody is depressed if they can't get up out of bed and mm. face the day ahead of them, as you mentioned earlier on. But it's not always that severe, as you said. Uh, what are what, what are the symptoms of depression? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. It's not always that severe and it can sometimes look a lot more subtle than that. So I suppose maybe if we were to break it down into sort of thoughts or thinking, so if someone might notice that they're talking their thoughts are getting a bit darker or maybe they're just getting a bit more hopeless about things or starting to view themselves um or other people in very negative kind of terms so maybe noticing a change in in kind of more depressive or or kind of hopeless sort of thinking that can also tie into experiences in the body too so feeling tired all the time and I suppose a lot of us would say we feel tired most of the time, but this is the kind of a level of tiredness that maybe doesn't really get better 
through rest or sleeping. So never really feeling rested. And you might also experience kind of aches and pains, general lack of energy to do anything. So motivation is another is another kind of sign. If you're just not getting that, that energy to do the things that you used to like doing. Mm. And obviously emotions as well. I mean, feeling a depression, obviously sadness is part of it. But for many people, irritability can be part of it. Um, agitation, anger, and I'm not to say that all of those emotions are all normal. I guess if you were to bring it all together, so the thoughts, kind of your feelings, and maybe also what you're doing as well, if you're noticing that you're kind of pulling back from people mm. or from doing things that you like doing, it's too much hot, too much bother, I'll go tomorrow. Um, if you kind of bring all of that together, the thoughts, feelings, and behaviours, um, and if that's kind of going on for a good few weeks, that's probably a point to say, okay, something might be might be happening here. Mm. So either talking to someone you can trust, maybe talking to your GP, or even going to like somewhere like Aware, like our website has a lot of information. We also have a, a phone line where you can just talk to someone, you know, confidentially, just about how you're doing, or even about how someone else is doing. If you're seeing that in a partner or a a child or another family member if you're just a bit worried about someone yeah. um, aware the phone line as well is, is another good port of contact just to be able yeah. to kind of talk through it Okay and that's one eight hundred eighty forty eight forty eight. we'll repeat that uh, again in a few moments uh, Aware does great work and uh, I think an awful lot of people uh, will uh, be uh, aware of that uh, but tell, mm. t- 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 tell me uh, uh, about people who get depressed is it of their own doing Um when you talk about um, people not being able to get out of bed, is there a reason they've lost their enthusiasm for life and should they just dust themselves off and get up and at it? Or is it bigger than that? Uh, is it something that's out of your control? Mm. Well, it's an interesting question. It's it's hitting on a, on a few kind of ideas, isn't it, about what depression is and how we might have understood it um, as we as we kind of come through time. Um, I suppose depression is a mental health condition, as I was saying earlier about that kind of continuum. You might feel a little bit low at times, but are still able to kind of keep going with things. Um, Some people may feel kind of moderately depressed, so things, life can be hard. Sometimes they're not doing what they want to be doing, or other people at that more extreme end are, are not able to function. You know, so I guess there's different kinds of support that are going to best meet people's needs wherever they are on that continuum. Certainly, um, evidence would say that a talking therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy or another um, other therapies like that or medication or often a combination of therapy and medication is going to help people. But certainly it, it depends on how depressed the person is. If this is what the evidence would say of what the right help is going to be for them so there's different interventions depending on the severity and I would say that but I would say maybe yeah. that in our survey kind yeah. of a lot of some for some of the people who didn't seek help this idea that they can kind of go it alone or they don't need help I mean there's loads of things that people can do to look after their mental health you know exercise connecting with people doing things that are meaningful yeah. um, but you don't have to go it alone if you're really suffering please don't go it alone yeah. there, there is help even there. if it seems that it's a- impossible because there are impossible situations in life and the cost of living crisis is probably a good example of that because we hear of people having to make impossible choices whether to heat the house 
or to eat, sure. so to heat or eat. Uh, and uh, when you don't have the money, you can't make up the money. And of course, that's uh, going to lo- le- lead uh, to changes in your mood. Uh, you're, you're concerned about the way we're living our lives uh, as well, are you? Um, you um, are worried about uh, how people are using social media. Well, I guess we saw a relationship between social media use and depression and anxiety. Again, that's a pretty complicated one that probably needs to to follow people over time. So a longer piece of research is going to yield maybe um, more significant findings in that. But I suppose we and that's in what we found is in line with the research more generally, that there is a connection We don't fully understand what that connection is. It may be that when people feel depressed, they use social media more. It might be using social media more can contribute to depression. We don't we do. We can't say that for sure. I guess what we do know in terms of what will help depression is, as I said, kind of diet, exercise um, being able to connect with people, doing things that are meaningful to you. All of the research says that that's a very good starting point to help improve mood. Mm. And if it doesn't kind of improve as a result of those things, definitely be talking to the GP. Okay. And speaking to people, exercise, uh, living uh, the way we were designed to live, uh, I suppose, uh, are are, uh, some of uh, the ways uh, of looking after your mental health. But as you say, most people uh, who feel depressed or see symptoms or signs of it, uh, reach out and get help. And there is plenty of help uh, available through uh, AWARE. Uh, And well, look, worth looking at the website, aware.ie as well. The support line, once again, 1-800-80-48-48. That's 1-800-80-48-48. Susan, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Susan Brannock, Clinical Director with AWARE. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the policing authority meeting uh, in Drogheda last week heard uh, from Assistant Commissioner Paula Hillman uh, about some worrying behaviour that uh, drivers are using their phones when they're driving, although not illegal. They're watching stuff on their phones, they're FaceTiming, messaging calls, or they're watching sport, as uh, the case may be. Uh, and there is no offence because they're not holding their phone. Paddy Common, Head of Communications with AA Ireland, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. I I take it there's little prospect of it becoming an offence if it's in a cradle. I I think it's something that is just one of these uh, strange anomalies. Uh, It's not strictly true that there would be no charge possible. A guardie can form an opinion that you were... You know, if they, if you were with this, they witnessed you, they could form an opinion out that you know you're dangerous driving or driving with due care of retention. But it it is more of a complicated measure then for the guard then that they need to bring you to court and the like. But um, but as it stands, it it sort of sits between two stools because you're not holding the phone in your hand, um, and that's that's where the grey area is. But uh, look, I think it, I think the result of this there there is going to have to be a change. And the thing is, Michael, people are more distracted than they ever were uh, people are watching I, you know I've seen people watching TikToks on the on the motorway and Instagram reels and the likes of that mm. um, because people are addicted to their phones and I, and I think that's something that we have to look at it's a broader a broader conversation But and does it um, worry you do you think it's dangerous uh, to be watching videos or, or whatever the case may be a penalty shootout as you're driving at 120 kilometres an hour yeah, of course. I mean, look, it's, it's obvious. I mean, if you if you break it down into into this, this this sort of measure of distance, if we want to use a football analogy, if you are traveling at eighty kilometers per hour, you're traveling twenty two meters per second. So in five seconds, you'll drive the length of that soccer pitch 
that you're uh, watching on TV um, with your eyes off the road. So look, it's it, it, it's crazy to do that. You know, obviously if it's if you know there's going to be a penalty shootout at some stage, pull in to the side of the road and pull into a car park and watch it properly. But don't be, uh, don't even dream of, of watching it in your car. It's absolute madness. Mm, uh, but not illegal uh, and very difficult to make it a, a crime, isn't it? Given that uh, you would. Uh, still be able to play music on your phone or you'd still be able to make a, a call uh, and speak to somebody if it's hands-free? Well, I, I think the thing is, if you look at things like Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, which are fitted to a lot of new cars that are coming on stream, that will give you an interface that's uh, in, the, in, the, in the dashboard of the car. And that will only that will allow you to use uh, apps which are deemed reasonably safe, so the likes of Spotify or your podcast mm. or the likes of that. But they, it'll shut off any of the ones where you can watch something. I, I think we need to be at a stage where, obviously there's personal responsibility, Michael, that people need to, to cop on and say, look, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, I'm putting other people's lives at risk. We, we will uh, you know, eventually be at a stage where you need to put your phone in the glove box or you need to put the phone in the boot of your car because in a lot of cases, especially in the modern cars, the car will still connect to your to you know your hands-free certainly with bluetooth you can put i know lots of people who put the phone in the yeah. boot of the car before they set off on a journey and it works perfectly fine for for what's safe to do so yeah well that's all right i suppose if you have a fancy new car what if you've got a car that's 20 years old <laughs> yeah look it, it, it is the same but look it, i think what most people would say is maybe it's not that important to take that call if you drive for a living then you are probably in a modern car or modern vehicle that has Bluetooth. If you're not, then maybe just wait for that call for later on because you're putting yourself at risk, you're putting other people's lives at risk. And look, while it does fall into that strange anomaly now, currently, of what, you know, if you're watching something on your phone, if you do, if you have a phone that you can watch a match on, you have the still to use Bluetooth. That's simple as that because you you could get yourself a Bluetooth headset or the like Mm. and then not be using it for watching TV. Okay, not watching TV. Where, where are you safe? Are you safe to read texts? Are you safe to read emails? Are, are you safe no, to listen to music? No. Are you safe to make calls? The, listening, uh, listening to music and making calls is safe, uh, safe enough. It's uh, the advice is never is not to do any any of the uh, those mm. because they've you know there have been statistics that even talking to someone on the phone is slightly more distracting than if you were talking to someone within the vehicle itself. Reading text, no, it shouldn't be done. It should be something that you do later on when you're stopped and pulled up and, and certainly not texting as well because your eyes are off the road for for, uh, for those periods of time. As I said, 22 metres per second at, at just 80 kilometres per hour. So obviously mm. more than that if you're on a motorway at 120. So, so no, not, not, not good to do that. All right. Uh, while you're with us, Paddy, can I just ask you about a, a, a different uh, issue? Speeding again, but uh, the other end of the scale. Uh, local councillor Michelle Hall in Drogheda is looking for a speed limit of 15 or 20 kilometres in housing states. Uh, PJ texting us about that this morning, saying if you drive at 15 kilometres an hour, you'll cause massive pollution and you could push the car faster. Uh, any thoughts on speed limits so low? I think they're they're difficult to to, to enforce. However, uh, from as someone who dri- drives around housing estates uh, quite a lot, you know you notice that kids are coming out of driveways at all speeds. People are reversing out. People are walking, and it's particularly um, kids on scooters, kids on bikes. I don't even go slow enough to be honest. Is it practical? It's not easy to do, of course. Mm. But uh, I think I think when you're in an estate, just go as slow as you, as slow as you can. In terms of pollution. 
you know, that's negligible effect. I, I wouldn't see that as being a huge issue. You'd never get out of second or third gear anyway, would you? Well, it depends on the car. Lots of the electric vehicles which, which are coming on stream now will, will, will comfortably go at that speed. But look, you know, you come into a state now and kids are belting out of driveways on scooters coming around corners. And uh, and look, if you, if you hit one of those, um, you know, it's a... Mm. It's, it's an awful scenario. Yeah, maybe there's a, a separate message in that for parents as well to tell their kids to be road aware. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. All right, Paddy, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Paddy Cummins is the Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Now, let me bring you some more of uh, the text. Thanks, by the way, PJ, uh, for that. Uh, I think PJ obviously opposed to the idea of driving at 15 or 20 kilometres or having to drive at 15 or, or 20 kilometres. Uh, and I, I'm sure... Uh, well, I'm sure some people would agree with PJ and others not. Uh, Michelle Hall, certainly not. Um, uh, somebody else in touch with us about RTE. Uh, just reading that the RTE paid 30000 for a U2 after party and twenty to 30000 to their very posh K-Club golf bash and all at the expense of the taxpayer. These people are very wealthy and well paid. Ellen sends the text and she she says, I'm in shock about all of this. Thanks, Ellen, for your text. Uh, as I, I mentioned earlier on, we've uh, some uh, messages that came to us uh, last week about RTE. That uh, saga is going to go on for some time to come and we're going to be hearing uh, more about uh, the money that has been spent from that slush fund. Uh, and I think a lot of questions uh, at the moment uh, about money uh, that was given uh, to Ryan Tuberty, uh, this 120000 and what was it for? And why was his agent paid 80,000 uh, in consultancy fees at the same time. Uh, but uh, I think we'll have more Rockless committees this week. We'll have more conversation. We might even have more revelations uh, if you can stomach it. I don't know if you're RTE'd out at this stage, if you're Ryan Tuberty'd out at this stage. Uh, but either way, uh, you're welcome to comment. Let me give you the numbers uh, and we'll come to all of the comments that we have after the break. Our telephone number is 0419832000. If you want to ring us now, uh, do so please on that number 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Send us a, a message uh, by SMS, text or on WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as I say, uh, we'll uh, come to some of uh, the comments uh, uh, that have been uh, coming to us uh, over the last uh, few days, uh, for that matter. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Do you think uh, that the editorial reasons for Ryan Tuberty not being on air is that his team are refusing to work with him? Or is he just hiding? Uh, thanks for that. Uh, I'm not sure uh, who that came from. Uh, I don't think he's hiding. I, I'm, I have no idea, but I would imagine uh, from uh, the statements uh, that he's issued, uh, because he, he's uh, disputed uh, that he's out of contract, that he, he wants to be at work, wants to be in contract, uh, wants to be employed. Uh, but of course, he's self-employed uh, and his contract has run out. I, I think um, if... RTE 
could sack him, that would be one thing. So they haven't sacked him because he doesn't work for them. Uh, but they do seem to be calling into question whether he'll ever be back because he's not in contract, if that makes sense. Uh, what he did was wrong, says somebody else. The people who paid it were worse, though. Uh, and he portrayed his colleagues, which is a, a kick up uh, the rear for them. Patton Dunlear was in touch with as well, wanting to know if members of management in RTE who seem to have developed amnesia or admitted to having no knowledge about the Tuberty payments will be allowed to walk away from this mess with their lovely big pensions in place. If so, then that is a complete joke. If these people were working for anyone else or any other company, they would have been sacked the moment the scandal broke. It it reeks of jobs for the boys, which is uh, the biggest problem in this country, and it has to end, says our caller. I think one of uh, the most dramatic things uh, that was revealed at the Public Accounts Committee meeting on Thursday was the thousands in the slush fund for the executives to entertain. Uh, People from advertising agencies, I imagine, going here, there, And anywhere that they felt would be interesting or fun (laughs) and might result in more advertising, I take it, regardless of the price. There was 111,000 for uh, travel and hotels to bring clients to the Rugby World Cup. Can you identify who them clients were? No, I can't. Why not? Well, not not on this uh, report. You, Mrs O'Leary? I can, but... um I would have to get their permission, but of course I know who they were. Taxpayers' money? Yes. And I will uh, get their permission. Can you give us one more example uh, on, was on the, the next, top range? Yeah, there was 10-year IRFU tickets bought for, um, well, they cost through the barter company, 138,000. 138,000 euros of taxpayers' money through a barter account. Can you give us one more example? Um, well, the Champions League final in 2019, 26,000. Can I? Can I? Mm, 26,000. All right. Uh, Pat in Dunlear, um, I Sorry, I read Pat's message. Paul. Uh, Paul, very interesting call from Paul. Uh, he rang in to say that the first person who wouldn't accept the money that Tuberty received can cast the first stone. He says, we're all giving out about Ryan accepting this money, but who wouldn't have taken it, Paul says. Well, that's an interesting question, which I won't answer, but our, our listeners might want to respond to you, Paul. Uh, the phone number 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. I just uh, saw a letter in the papers today, Paul, after reading your comment about the first person uh, who wouldn't have accepted the money should be the person who cast the first stone. Uh, and I, I thought... Uh, there was a very similar point made in it. This from the Irish Independent today. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone in the vendetta against RTE. Like thousands of others, I've been listening to the news about uh, the RTE payments to its presenters and I'm well and truly done with it, taking over the news every day. The nerve of RTE staff, uh, the committee that called RTE heads in for questioning the comments from other broadcasters, the public, it really is 
unbelievable. Talk about jumping on the bandwagon. Their holier-than-thou attitudes suggesting they would never do such things as we've heard about are quite pathetic. Has anybody given any thought to Ryan Turbidy and his immediate family? We can all give our views on it, but the reality is Ryan Tuberty and maybe D Forbes alone know the full truth of the situation. I'm really shocked at how quickly people turned on Tuberty. What is it? Could it be jealousy? The Oroctus through our Taoiseach is calling for him to answer questions in person. In my view, it's a little bit like when people used to attend executions, getting a vicarious thrill out of the suffering. For him to lose his job is awful, unless he wants that too. Maybe at this stage he feels he just couldn't go back to it. What is that quote from the Bible? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone. stone. Leave him alone. Leave D Forbes alone and stop pushing so publicly for answers. Uh, and as I say, that's a, a letter with uh, the Irish Independent today. I don't know uh, if Ryan Tuberty is going to appear before an Oroxus committee. That certainly seems uh, to be what the committees want. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd emigrate if I was Ryan Tuberty or face those questions. Uh, but should he? I don't know what uh, you think. If you have any thoughts, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we'd somebody else in touch with us uh, about uh, the uh, RTE payments. It was David Andrade who wanted to know what about Patrick Keelty. Uh, he's going to fly in from England to do the Late Late Show in Ireland for €8,000 a show. Who will be covering the cost of his travel and hotel expenses, not to mention the environmental impact? Why do they not employ somebody who lives in this country? Thanks uh, very much uh, for that, David. I think uh, it was 56,000, was it, uh, that uh, Patrick Keelty was offered in expenses so that he could travel and stay somewhere when he was uh, travelling over from the UK but he's waived those expenses uh, so he won't be getting that he'll be getting the 250 uh, thousand for the 30 shows and 20,000 uh, for pre-production but he's waived those travel expenses uh, and he's asked uh, or she to look at uh, the carbon uh, imprint and uh, to uh, look at, at carbon offset uh, offsetting his, his flights uh, for that matter because he will have to fly over every week uh, but uh, 250,000 is the salary there uh, and I don't know uh, relative to what some of uh, the performers in RTE are earning maybe 250,000 is not a, a lot of money uh, relatively speaking um, thanks to John uh, texting us about speed limits Uh, And the idea of driving at 50 or 20 kilometres an hour by law in housing estates, which Michelle Haw uh, is uh, suggesting. John says, drive from LMFM down the road over the motorway, up Denor Road, over Marley's Lane. Drive at 50 kilometres an hour and see how many cars pass you, all driving at speeds in excess of the speed limit, you won't get very far uh, if you try to drive at 50, never mind 15 kilometres an hour. Uh, that's uh, the, 
they uh, uh, the experience uh, John has had and I, I think I've had that experience myself uh, it can be uh, quite frustrating trying to stay within the speed limit within towns um, somebody else in touch with us saying I watched the inquiry on Wednesday and Thursday these are the Oireachtas committees uh, and the RTE hearings uh, not one of them uh, seemed to be able to tell the truth just looking at their actions told the story uh, between looking at each other when they were questioned. Also, they had a, a problem clearing their throats and scratching themselves when asked a question and contradicting themselves. Uh, h- how many people have gone to jail for not having a TV licence in this country? Uh, and that's what the licence fee is uh, being used for. Another uh, text from a Wilkinson resident uh, who says, Michael, what do your listeners think about hundreds of tractors and similar machinery polluting the countryside with their toxic fumes, especially on tractor runs, especially as it's difficult to breathe when they're on the road. Thank you indeed uh, for uh, that, the Wilkinstown resident. I've no idea. Um, I think people generally like tractor runs, uh, but um, I don't know, maybe other people like yourself have a, a problem with the environmental impact. Um, the best thing I do uh, when I turn uh, to a station that plays music, uh, this is to do with driving uh, when you're uh, on the phone so that you're not uh, distracted. Uh, on uh, The Late Late Show and Patrick Keelty taking the job for €250,000 a year, uh, James Indrata says, why wasn't that job advertised? If state, If it's a state body, it should have been advertised. Thank you indeed for that. Uh, just to uh, let you know, we've had a, a notice uh, from Irish Water, uh, Ishka Aaron advising you if you're on the Slane Road, Navin, surrounding areas. Uh, there could be water disruption today. This is up until half 11 this morning due to a burst water main that they're working on repairing. Areas affected are Dunmo, uh, Donamore, and Greg's Lane. All right, uh, just to remind you again, if you want to make comment 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. There are actually some problems that come with full employment. Uh, employment uh, is at a record high in uh, this country. The latest Grant Thornton, latest international business report, says that 57% of businesses are finding constraints in growing their business because they can't get the staff. There's a shortage of skilled workers in this country. The government is looking uh, to review the list of occupations uh, that come under the critical skills occupations list and the ineligible occupations list so that employers can bring workers into this country with uh, a working permit uh, and uh, we'll hear a little bit more about this now. We're joined by Minister of State Neil Richmond uh, who is a Minister uh, at the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. A very good morning to you Minister and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Employers are obviously struggling to get skilled staff uh, and you're hoping uh, to give them more options I suppose. Absolutely Mike and good morning to you. We run a, a fairly comprehensive immigration system here when it comes to critical skills work permits. We run three lists. The top list is a critical skills work permit where someone from outside the Europe, Ireland, outside the European Economic Area, which is the EU, uh, UK, Switzerland, Iceland and Norway. If it's a critical skill, one of those professions, like a certain type of software engineer or a medical doctor or a nurse, um, you just advertise the position normally, hire them and you can bring them over straight away. It's not a very long process. 
if it's someone who is on the eligible list, you need to advertise and show that there's a need. So prove that there is nobody, not just in Ireland, but anywhere within the European economic area who's able to do that position. And once you've demonstrated that uh, and are and, and the position of the minimum salary of €30,000, you can bring them over. Then we have a very large ineligible list. And the sort of professions on the ineligible list will mm. include, say, a motor vehicle mechanic. Yeah, um, and we could uh, do with a few of them in the NCT centres. Well, that's a whole separate thing. And I'll, I'll just mm. touch on that briefly, if you don't mm. mind, Mike. Parallel to this, uh, I've issued 100 work permits last Friday uh, specifically for uh, NCT testers. That's in, in combination with Minister Jack Chambers to help mm. clear that backlog. But more generally, a, a general motor vehicle mechanic and try and get into a local garage and get an appointment in the next mm. two weeks is pretty tough, um, even if it is coming to a quieter time of year. We, we simply don't have enough. And I'm hearing this all the time, not just from employers, but from customers, um, from consumers saying that, well, I can't get staff to work in a factory, I can't get someone to work in a building site, but equally, I can't get a service that's too long a wait. Yeah. So we've under, we've, we opened up a full review of the critical skills list. The first time we've done a full review in two years, that commenced last Monday and will go until the 18th of August. And we want to hear from everyone, employers, trade unions, representative groups, individuals already received a number of representations for, from individual TDs. If there's occupations that need to move from the ineligible list to the eligible list or the eligible list to the critical skills list, yeah. we need to hear. Because you're dead right, we have a sector full employment. Um, only 3.8% people uh, on the unemployment, uh, 3.7% of people as of next month will be unemployed, 2.61 million at work. And this isn't unique to Ireland. In America, they've 10 million vacancies and only 5 million people mm. to fill them. Uh, it's the same across Europe, 6% unemployment rate. But that's why we need to go outside the European economic area in the short term. Mm. In the medium term, we have to get more apprentices into the trades. That's why there's 5,000 more places available uh, through the CAO for the first time uh, for people to go in and become an apprentice uh, carpenter, plumber, um, electrician, whatever it may be. Mm. But in the short term, we need more people to come here to address the very clear um, lack of staff available. But we need to hear exactly. We have an idea where you need to go, but we need to hear from industry. We need to have those cases made to us as well. So if businesses are struggling to get skilled workers, uh, they need to make contact they can make a submission at least uh, and uh, it'll be looked at uh, so that uh, these workers uh, could be added uh, to the critical skills list Uh, but you need more than a a critical skills work permit to work in this country don't you you need a visa as well in a lot of cases pretty much every case if you're coming from outside the european economic area you need a visa now at the moment um we've managed to get the turnaround for a work permit uh processing down to nine working days. A year ago when Damien English was minister, it was at 21 weeks, he managed to bring that right down with his officials down to an average of nine days. However, um, getting a visa can take four to six weeks in addition. Um, So in the medium term, what we're actually doing, Mike, is we're we're looking to bring one singular system. So in the next 12 to 18 months, when you apply for your visa and your work permit, you'll do it through one application and get the same singular answer at the same time at the Mm. moment. It requires two, and unfortunately, there can be a bit of a backlog that someone will get their work permit, but there'll still be another four to six weeks before they get their visa. Four to six, or, or, or longer on occasion, I, I take it. Um, I, I think you're aware of uh, 
the contact we had from local engineering company Enersol, uh, who are waiting on visas for two workers uh, who have the permits, the critical skills work permits. Uh, they applied for their visas in Iran on the 7th of March. Uh, those applications were received in Dublin on the 18th of April. They were asked for more information then. That was answered on the 25th of April. Uh, and this company is scratching its head now saying, why have those visas not been issued as yet? Yeah, and I spoke to actually Minister Helen McEntee about this just this morning. She's very aware of the case, but unfortunately not every application is is very straightforward. And you mentioned Iran as a company. In order, from our point of view, we can issue the work permits quite clearly, recognising their qualifications. Then look at this person, says they're an architect, they're an architect they've proved that they haven't been able to find someone in the European Economic Area to do the job. Visas are different, Mike, and depending on what country you're coming to, depending on your status, your financial means, your family section, each individual case um, is different, and that's why it's a four to six week average working time, mm. but there's always going to be individual cases where certain individuals, and I've had a situation in the past where I've issued a couple of hundred work permits to a certain sector, um, and then the Department of Justice identified the people, and, and there was huge issues um, with the individuals, they simply weren't who the, the agency, the recruitment agency mm. in that country said they were. So this is why we have those checks and balances. And sometimes there are individual cases that take a little longer. but A lot longer. I mean, you're saying four to six weeks, Minister. Um, Enersol is saying three to six months. Uh, this is a process they've been through before. Uh, and they say uh, that the waiting time is, is a fifth of what it is here in the UK. Well, as I said, this, these are individual cases, and I don't want to get into the specifics yeah. of two individual people. There will always be those cases, particularly when it comes to visas, that go way beyond the average. But we've managed to get to four to six weeks for a visa, mm. which is very, very, um, you know, very reasonable. Our work permits are the second fastest processing time in the European Union, behind just the Netherlands. And visas were definitely in the in the top in the top um, the top five mm. uh, in the European Union. The UK is a little bit different, and the UK has a few issues when it comes to they've issued seasonal work permits, and it's not actually processing that well. And look, we, we see what's happened. Um, is is it a vetting process, or, or, or why why might it take up to six months to give a visa to somebody? Again, it, every individual individual case is different. I don't want mm. to go... Is it the countries, though, that people are coming from that is different? Or is it that people uh, individually can turn out to be more complicated than other individuals? Well, I'm going to just be a bit careful, Michael. Yeah. We've named the company in question and we've named the country where these works come from. So we just have to be a little bit... I don't want to get into too much specific because this is personal and private data that people applied for. But... I'll give you a few examples of what can cause major delays, not necessarily specific to this case, but absolutely the country of origin um, can be can be an issue. But the documents provided, um, are they, and I've dealt with many cases that have been rejected and then uh, accepted on appeal, the documents haven't been correct, um, they haven't been in date, the people have turned out to simply not be the people that they say they are. It doesn't match up the register. There could be a criminal conviction gets flagged up further down the line. They don't have the financial means uh, to support themselves. There can be a hundred different reasons that can cause either a major delay but require serious questioning when we're bringing people in. We have a very robust immigration system in this country. We make sure that everyone who's coming here from outside the European Economic Area meets the test needed to be issued a visa. We still manage to get an average visa processed in four to six weeks. The backlogs that we had that developed over COVID in terms of passports and work permits and visas, they've all been cleared. Four to six weeks is a reasonable waiting time. Those that go exponentially beyond that 
of course there's huge concerns, but I can I can tell you for every individual case that takes a bit longer, there is always good reason for mm. it. Okay. There is always a clarity of checks needed. Okay, but you're going to combine the two processes, uh, that of uh, applying for the permits and visas, uh, and uh, that should streamline the whole thing, is it? Yeah, like, and that's, yeah. That's, mm. this is an efficiency measure. It doesn't require legislation, and this is, mm. requires a new system from an ICT point of view, whereby you put in one application and you get the, an- the same answer uh, at one time. Because at the moment, we have a situation where someone will get their work permit, they'll have to wait six weeks, potentially as long as six weeks to get their visa. And then, depending on what the profession is, if they're a driver, they then have to wait for the RSA uh, to verify the license. So, if we can at least put the visa and work permit, like they do in the Netherlands, and to have it as one singular system, that, yes, will save time, but will also mean mm. that people aren't hanging around waiting up to 12 weeks to take up a job. Okay, and you also want to hear from people in the department if they'd like certain professions added to the critical skills list. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Neil Richmond. Before we leave you today, can I bring you some more of the comments that have been coming to us? We Peter in Dundalk. WhatsApping saying, Michael, I hear you quoting the Bible about Ryan Tuberty uh, and RTE saying, he who is without sin cast the first stone. I'd ask them, did they ever hear what happened to, to Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, thanks, uh, Peter, for that. Um, we'd Kevin and Drum Conrad saying, hello, Michael, I really think that all who works for RTE should be looked into after this scandal with Ryan Tuberty and then the politicians should also be looked into. Do you believe Ryan was the only one who received money? There is more to come out of the woodwork says Kevin in Drum Conrath. Thank you for that as well. Paddy Duffy says the problem in RTE started years ago when the false narrative was created that the so-called talent would leave if they didn't get these exorbitant salaries. Remember these salaries were much higher years back than this narrative was perpetrated ever since. If they want to leave, let them leave, says Paddy Duffy. It is kind of remarkable, isn't it, uh, thinking uh, that people are shocked at the idea of Ryan Tuberty or whoever else earning half a million or 550,000 or whatever it was he earned in a year. Uh, that's besides the cars and whatever else goes with it. Uh, but that, uh, what was it, 10 or 15 years ago, Pat Kenny was earning a million, twice as much. Uh, and we were all told to mind our own business back then or Pat Kenny would go uh, and leave the country, uh, as Paddy states in his text. I'm not sure that uh, there's many people who would be poached uh, from Irish Broadcasting by the BBC uh, or elsewhere for that matter, but maybe we'll come back to that uh, another day. Thanks, Paddy. Thanks for everybody who's been in touch. That's all we have time for today. That's our programme. Maggie Maguire Research. Chris Murray was in the control term. I, Michael, God willing, will see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.